0: Open your Bibles with me back to that last passage that was read to you. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. If you have not enjoyed singing praise to the Lord Jesus Christ, hearing Psalm 45 read and reading it yourselves, and having those other three passages of Scripture read to you, if those things have not caused you to rejoice in your heart that you are in the house of the Lord this day and that Jesus Christ is your King, repent in your hearts. Repent that you are so wrapped up in the foolish little things of your life that you have not exalted the Lord Jesus Christ to where He belongs. He should excel all the best things of your life like light excels darkness. David said, and David had more pleasures than you can even dream about at night. David said, my heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made concerning the King. David loved those things. And for you to even be close to being like David, you have to love praising the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, we are so abundantly blessed. Blessed. We have the things of a good covenant. The things of the New Testament are better than the things of the Old Testament. The things of the New Testament are more perfect than the things of the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul himself, a Jew, brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, said that the Old Testament was weak and beggarly. we have the blessings of the New Testament. Jesus Christ was made a king when He ascended up into heaven 1,976 years ago, in 30 A.D., after laying down His life for us, rising from the dead three days and three nights later, spending 40 days and showing to His disciples by many infallible proofs that He was alive, and then going into heaven, that He is the King of the Kingdom of God. We had passages read to us, Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 40. Those passages are shadows. They were written by prophets that didn't know what they were writing, and they were written to people that didn't know what they were reading. We know what they wrote, And we read them with understanding that they were describing the New Testament kingdom that you are enjoying right at this very moment. Both of those passages and countless others like them, which we will look at over the next few weeks, describe the New Testament gospel kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. All you have to do is look at Isaiah 11. And find where those verses are quoted in the New Testament. Isaiah 40. And find where they're quoted in the New Testament. We are not waiting for some earthly kingdom of restored Jewish preeminence. That is a Jewish fable. Amen. God has left the Jews and graft in the Gentiles and made of the twain one new man. Right. Preaching peace by Jesus Christ. Amen. We are the true Israel of God and the true Jews of the New Testament. And that is a fundamental, most important point of doctrine that we cannot forget when we think about the kingdom of God. I want to preach to you today and for several Sundays about the millennium. The millennium. The average Christian has heard the word. And he'll say, I believe in a millennium. The lion's going to lie down with the lamb. And so in their heads, they see a zoo where the the bars are taken down. And the lion is lying down with the lamb. What a preposterous joke. The prophets never wrote like that. We read the words in Isaiah chapter 11. But Isaiah wasn't prophesying about a change at the Greenville Zoo. He was talking about a change in the zoo of the animals that are sitting in the pews facing me. The lion shall lie down with the lamb. That is so easily understood as our brother Michael Lutman lying down with our sister Tammy Grimm. We understand that. Be thankful I didn't use you as an example for either one. We, we, have, a, we have come together in this assembly in peace. Yes. Because Jesus Christ has made peace for us with God and peace among ourselves. And so though we be from all different kinds of backgrounds, there we are one in Christ Jesus. Amen. That was at the first coming of Jesus Christ. Oh brethren, we are in the millennium. I will prove that 50 different ways before we're finished. We are in the millennium. The word millennium isn't even in the Bible. The average Christian believes the millennium without even being able to find it. If they can find it, there's only one passage in the book of Revelation, and we're going to get to that in just a moment, but I have to start right here in Hebrews chapter 12. When you read through the Old Testament you must read with the spectacles of the New Testament on. That is one of our rules. We will trust Paul farther than any writer of the Old Testament, and we will trust Paul more than C.I. Schofield, Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, or anyone else trying to tell us what the Old Testament means. You should read their rules of Bible study For prophetic passages, we will get to those. We trust our brother Paul. He was a Jew, and he said he had more understanding of these things than any other man. God specially chose him to be the apostle to us Gentiles, and so we follow him. Now when he, as a Jew, wrote to other converted Jews, we have the book of Hebrews. Every other epistle he wrote were addressed to Gentile churches. But here is an Israelite writing Israelites, a Hebrew writing Hebrews, a Jew writing Jews. If there is some future 1,000 year period of time in which the Jews are going to be restored as the master race on earth, and Jesus is going to waste his time sitting in that ugly little city at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea on a throne made of wood with restored animal sacrifices and a temple made by hands, something is drastically wrong. The Bible doesn't teach us any such thing. If that was going to happen, it would be told right here. Right here in the book of Hebrews. Paul would have comforted these Hebrews as don't you worry about this little interruption of a 2,000 year church age of Gentiles. Because God's going to give you the kingdom back and you're going to be able to ride on them like you ride your donkey to work. There is nothing like that in the book of Hebrews. Because there is no future 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. Now, I don't want you to take my word for it yet except to accept that as a premise. And we're going to prove it from the word of God. And it's not going to all be done today. We're going to scratch the surface today. But if you were listening to Psalm 45, and if you listen to the passages that were read, we've already made a great deal of progress. Yes, amen. Look at Hebrews 12. A Hebrew to Hebrews. An Israelite writing to Israelites. A Jew writing to Jews. Here's what he has to say about Jerusalem, about a city, about Jesus, about a kingdom. Here's what he has to say. Hebrews 12:22, and our brother read it just fine. I have to read it again because I want to give the sense now. Verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Yeah. Notice, I will comment after each verse. This passage does not tell the Hebrews that they are going to come to a heavenly Jerusalem. It does not say that they are going to come back to Mount Zion. It says they are come. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, baptized believers, these saints had already come to the new Jerusalem. The kingdom of God, the city of the living God, the Mount Zion that is in heaven. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. They are in union with a great host in heaven called the general assembly. This, our church, is a local assembly in heaven is a general assembly. It's the whole church of all the redeemed that have died before us, and their spirits are there. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. And that sprinkling of blood is the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ for our sins. There is one long sentence, verses 22 through 24, and it describes what these Hebrews had now come into union with. And that was the heavenly Jerusalem. That was Zion above. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. His kingdom. The spirits of all men, Jews and Gentiles, that have died before us and gone to heaven and to an innumerable, which means an uncountable, number of angels. The whole kingdom of God. Angels, men that have already died before us, and those on earth are all united together through the blood of Jesus Christ. There isn't something coming. This is the kingdom. But let's keep reading. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Remember, the whole purpose for the book of Hebrews is to tell converted Jews, don't you go back to your old way of worship under Moses. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape, If we turn away from Him that speaketh from heaven. Paul reminds the Jews that when they their fathers stood at Mount Sinai and they refused to hear the Word of God at a couple places in the Old Testament, God judged them severely. How much more are you going to be judged, Paul is telling these Hebrews, if you turn away from Him that speaks from heaven? When Moses gave the law, when Moses told them to take the land of Canaan, They refused it and were judged. And Paul is making an appeal. Don't you turn away from what you're hearing sent down from heaven, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 26, Whose voice then shook the earth. Way back at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai actually shook. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Verses 26 and 27 is Paul saying, God has promised that He's going to shake the heavens and the earth. At Mount Sinai, He just shook the earth. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth, and there is going to be a complete religious change of things, So that the things that are left are the final things and the things that are temporary are going to float away just as if you were shaking a rug. If you took a rug outside and shook it, whatever is left is part of the rug. Whatever floated away is the dust and dirt and weak and beggarly elements you were trying to get rid of. Now, when did this shaking take place? It took place with the arrival of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ and his apostles. That's Paul's whole point. He's telling the Hebrews what you already have and what you have now and what you are come unto is the final form of worship of God on earth. You say, but it says... It says, yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. That sounds like it's future tense. Well, that's because we're reading Haggai. Of course it was future tense to Haggai. This is Haggai chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is quoting. That's why we have the word saying in that verse 26. Saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. Do you know what it says over there in the book of Haggai? It says I'm going to shake the heaven and the earth and the desire of all nations is going to come. Do you know when the desire of all nations came? He came at His first coming. The desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory. What house was he talking about? He was talking about a a string that was laid out on the ground where Haggai and Zerubbabel and Jeremiah, Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah were looking at the outline for a rebuilt temple after the Jews had come back from Babylon. They were going to rebuild the temple that Solomon had built because Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it. And Haggai says, he's he's giving a prophetic message, the Lord is going to shake the heavens and the earth, and this little house that you are so ashamed of at this moment, I'm going to fill with glory, and in this house I will give peace. That house ceased to exist in 70 A.D. when the Lord Jesus Christ by Roman armies tore it to shreds. What peace did the Lord Jesus Christ make in that house? He tore that veil in half and made peace between us and God. He put glory in that house by the presence of the Son of God. That isn't some future event. There is no future event in Hebrews 12 here at all whatsoever in a secondary form or otherwise. This is a one-time event at the first coming of Jesus Christ because Paul told them, You are come to a new Mount Zion. He shook away the old one, the old Jerusalem that is on this earth, even in the days of Paul, was compared to Hagar and her son. It had nothing to do with the worship of God. And it still doesn't have anything to do with the worship of God, and it will never have anything to do with the worship of God. God is not worshipped in that place and never will be. He is worshipped in a heavenly Jerusalem, and that is the city that even Abraham looked for. That's why it says in verse 28, Wherefore? Because of what I've just told you by explaining to you Hebrews about the proper interpretation of Haggai, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. What we have right now is something that cannot be moved because the shaking took place before I wrote Hebrews 12. Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. If they were judged at Mount Sinai, just think how much more seriously we're going to be judged if we rebel against Him that's speaking from heaven and from the heavenly Mount Zion. This is so simple. This is elementary truth. This is basic. But they totally miss it. It It was future to Haggai. We know exactly what temple was under consideration... When Haggai said, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I'm going to fill this house with glory, that house hasn't been here for 2,000 years. This is a kingdom that was in the days of the Apostle Paul in 60 A.D. This is a kingdom that had arrived, and it was the final kingdom. That's why Paul said, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. We have the last worship of God, and we are part of it, brethren. We are Gentile partners in this. What a wonderful passage of Scripture. Amen. Ye are come, Amen. not ye will come. Ye are come. We are not looking for some new dispensation. We are not looking for some new change of things. This is; These are the last days. This is the final way of worshiping God. There is not going to be some kingdom coming after this kingdom. And yet the most of the Christian world, especially in our city, wants to teach about some millennial kingdom that is going to come to replace this kingdom and it's going to go back to an earthly Jerusalem. It's going to go back to an earthly temple. It's going to go back to animal sacrifices when we have come to a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly temple, a heavenly altar, and heavenly blood, which is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and it speaks better things than that of Abel. Amen. Oh, I wasn't talking about the millennial kingdom. He wasn't giving C.I. Schofield something to speculate about. He was saying what Jesus Christ would do when He came. Amen. And He did it. And He gave us His kingdom. And men pressed into it, and the Jews pressed into it first. The Jews that were converted. And it's the kingdom that's going to remain. And there is no other kingdom to replace this kingdom. This is what we believe. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. I am not going to start verse by verse today in Revelation 20. That's coming. We don't go into Revelation and develop our doctrine from that book and then go and put that on the rest of the Bible. We go to the rest of the Bible and find out what it's teaching before we go into the book of Revelation where we're told that he's speaking in signs and similitudes. I hope you noticed in Hebrews twelve twenty seven that it said, Yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken. Signifieth. See, it's not very plain, is it? He signified it. If he said, Yet once more, I shake the heavens and the earth. See, he shook the earth one time. The Israelites came out of Egypt and they didn't know how to worship God. Are you all with me? Yes. The Israelites came out of worship and they didn't know how to worship God. They had no religion. All that you read about in the Bible wasn't given to them yet. So the Lord shook the earth and established a new religion in the earth. It came down from Mount Sinai and it had about 813 laws for Israel to keep to please God. Some moral, some ceremonial, some civil, but it was an enormous codex of laws And you can read about it in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's when he shook the earth the first time. And so we went from the patriarchal age, from Adam to Moses, without a formal way of formal public worship. And then from Moses to Christ, we had the Old Testament. And then with the arrival of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, we have this new form of worship. When God said, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I'm going to turn things completely upside down and you're going to be brought into union with those in heaven. Right. Here's a verse. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is waiting for it. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. Men were pressing into it in the days of John the Baptist. That's why Paul said in Hebrews 12, we are come. Right. The kingdom was there. They were already in it. And we're in it today. Amen. Now all of that effort that I just spent is because there's so much I have to unteach rather than teach. Right. I would love to just teach rather than unteach all that's been taught by premillennialist spe- speculators. I'll have more to say on them in just a minute. Revelation chapter 20. What I am preaching to you for the next several Sundays is the gospel millennium. How the Bible plainly teaches that one final day is coming soon. One final day that's going to wrap up everything. Jesus Christ will come the second time. There will be a resurrection of all bodies, the righteous and the wicked. There's only one resurrection taught in the Bible. The final judgment will occur. We will stand before God and give an account of our lives. Those that are judged out of the books whose names are not found written in the book of life will be cast into hell, and those whose names are written in the book of life will be received into heaven. The heaven and the earth will already have fled away and be completely reformed by the purging fires of God Almighty, and we will dwell forever in a new heaven and a new earth, and it's all coming in one future day. It is not spread out by a seven-year tribulation, a thousand-year millennium, a battle at Armageddon, and a whole bunch of stuff like that that they make up. I will show you from the Bible over the next few weeks. The gospel millennium. We are going to deny the Jewish fable of an earthly kingdom of God. Restored in Jerusalem with the restored altar, temple, and sacrifices, with Jesus restoring Israelites after the flesh as the preeminent race on earth. With the wicked and the righteous living side by side in a prosperous glory age of the earth. Who'd want it? When we can have this. I'd rather have this than anything described like that. If I were to read one article in a newspaper that my Lord Jesus Christ was sitting in front of an altar where an animal was being offered again, I'll take this any day. We're going to have the Lord's Supper in the second service. That's a whole lot better than any blood of animals they can offer on any altar in any place with anyone present. But they're not going to be doing that anyway. The lies that have come out in the last 176 years are unbelievable. No one ever believed that stuff before 1830. Go look it up. Go do some research and see if anyone believed the pre-tribulationary, premillennial return of Jesus Christ before 1830. No one did. It was invented by a little Scottish lass named Margaret MacDonald in 1830. She was 15 years old. She was in a charismatic trance, and she's the first one that told about two comings of Jesus Christ. And that's what Schofield, John Darby, Edward Irving, and all the rest are teaching today. Including that world's most unusual university in our city. Including Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye and their Left Behind series. No one's going to be left behind. Everyone's going to be resurrected on one day of resurrection that is coming. And we're all going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. We we deny the Jewish fable of an earthly millennium where the Jews are the master race and Jerusalem is the capital of the worship of God and the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting there with animals being offered again on an earthly throne, in an earthly temple made with hands. We have a temple that abides forever and it's in heaven. We affirm that John the Baptist and Jesus Christ established the kingdom of God, which is the spiritual reign of Jesus Christ that will endure until the second coming which is the fulfillment of the blessings promised in the Old Testament prophets, and it's the joyful rest of the people of God under gospel truth. That's what we're going to affirm. Amen. What is a millennium? Milla is Latin for thousand. Annus is Latin for years. Millennium is a thousand years. The word millennium isn't in your Bible. That's the word they've coined for The first seven verses of Revelation chapter twenty. For you, for you students. A millimeter is how much of a meter? How much of a meter? One thousandth, because milli means thousand. So a millimeter is one thousandth of a meter. What's a centimeter? One hundredth of a meter. Because a centurion had how many soldiers reporting to him? A hundred. How many years in a century? See, we're having a good math lesson right now. A millennium. A thousand years. It doesn't occur in the Bible in that form. Here's its form. Let me read just the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 20. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. There are six occurrences of the expression a thousand years. A thousand years occurs six times in those seven or eight verses that we just read. We understand that John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ set up his kingdom that at that first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan was bound "...in His power to deceive the nations, so that the gospel could be preached in all the world to all nations for a witness." Prior to that time, all the nations of the world were in gross idolatry. After that time, idolatry fell away because of the influence of Christianity that was preached everywhere to all nations by the apostles and then by their followers. The word thousand years we understand to be a figurative expression like most everything else in the book of Revelation, to describe all the period of time, all the years between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Those that are Christ live and reign with Him a thousand years. They will not have any part in the second death. They live and reign with Christ while they're on earth. We learned that in studying Ephesians chapter 2. And they live and reign with Christ after they die and they go to heaven. Toward the end of that period of time between the two comings of Jesus Christ, His first coming and His second coming, Satan will be released, will be loosed from His prison where He's being restrained from deceiving the nations in the way that He once did, and He will go and deceive them one more time for one final horrendous assault on the camp of the saints, which is us. It does not have to be militarily. That is a weak approach. Satan has learned that the military approach doesn't work. It will be an assault to get rid of Christianity. And Jesus Christ will come the second time and burn Him up and cast Him into the lake of fire and burn up the earth and we will be judged. And the the book of life is recorded next here in the last five verses of this chapter. We will come back to Revelation 20. Is this where we should start? Because the thousand years is mentioned in Revelation 20, should we start here? No. Because this is a figurative book that better match up with what is plainly stated in other places. Look at verse 1 of Revelation. And some of you have been here many times before. But it does not hurt you to go over it again. And all of our children need to understand these things. You do not establish doctrine from the book of Revelation you go elsewhere to the Apostle that was given to you. John was not given to you. Gog and Magog don't mean anything to you because you're a Gentile. Gog and Magog meant something to Hebrews. And we'll understand that. You don't know what the beloved city is unless you've read the whole Bible. Hebrews knew what the beloved city was. And Hebrew Christians knew that it had changed. Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. And He sent and signified it by His angel unto His servant John. When something is signified to a person, it means it is not stated plainly. It's given to you in signs. So the very first verse of this book is telling wise readers... Do not dive into these pages and apply the Schofield method of Bible interpretation, which means to take every word in its ordinary, normal, literal sense. Do you know what's going to happen to you if you try that in the book of Revelation? You're dead meat. Because the words in this book are not to be understood in their normal, ordinary, literal sense. The words in this book are signifying something else. They're creating word pictures, and we are to look past the word picture to what the prophet is trying to tell us. And the prophet here is the Lord Jesus Christ showing to John things that must shortly come to pass. So we don't start in the book of Revelation. You know, as we read down through the book of Revelation, you didn't see... Any new altar, a restoration of animal sacrifices, supremacy of the Jews, or anything else that C.I. Schofield and others teach is going to happen in the millennium. It wasn't even in the passage that they claim for their millennium. We don't start in the book of Revelation. It's very dangerous to take a figurative passage, interpret it literally, and presume a a novel doctrine that is not taught anywhere else. Now just think about that. To go into a figurative book, apply a literal interpretation to a passage, and come up with something that isn't taught anywhere else in the New Testament. That is highly dangerous, and it's resulted in the heresy of several millennial schools of thinking. What are the main millennial schools of thought? A pre-millennialist. Pre-millennialist. Pre means before. If you go to preschool, that means you're going somewhere before school. Before real school. It's called preschool. But premillennialist means Jesus Christ's second coming comes before the millennium. This thousand years in Revelation chapter 20 is something that comes after Jesus Christ's second coming. That's what premillennialist means. What does postmillennialist mean? There are postmillennialists. It is called post-millennialism. Post means after. The second coming of Jesus Christ is after the millennium. There's going to be a thousand-year golden age on earth before Jesus comes. Things are going to get better and better until the whole world is Christianized. Then Jesus will come. That's post-millennialism. And then there's a school of thought called amillennialism. Ah, that's the letter A. If I use the letter A in front of a theist, what do I have? Atheist. What does that mean? A theist is someone who believes in God. An atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God. An A or A millennialist is someone who doesn't believe in the millennium, but that isn't true. That's simply what we're called. The amillennialist doesn't look for... a a specific thousand-year literal golden fleshly age on earth, they understand the thousand years to be a figurative expression describing a spiritual reign of the Lord Jesus Christ with His saints between His first coming and His second coming. And it's not right to say they don't believe in the millennium, but that's what amillennialist means. It means they don't believe in the literal earthly kingdom that the premillennialist does or the earthly literal kingdom that the postmillennialist does. Those are the main views of the thousand years in Revelation chapter 20. What else does a premillennialist believe? Premillennialism is what the majority, 98% of fundamental conservative Christians would believe in our county. That Jesus Christ is coming before the millennium. Well, the world itself couldn't contain the books of all the ideas that the premillennialists have because they have tried to take figurative passages of Scripture and given them literal interpretations, your guess is as good as their guess. And most of them have wanted to write books and sell movies based on their guesses. Because once you start down the path of anything I find in Revelation, I'm just going to adapt it to what I read in the newspaper today, you end up like Jack and Rexella Van Empey, and the sky's the limit. The world itself could not contain the books, that have been written about the premillennial scheme. And I mean that. And I, I don't mean it nearly in a hyperbolic way as John did when he said that in John chapter 20. It is unbelievable. For those of you that are a little older, Clarence Larkin's cartoon book, Salem Kurban's cartoon book, Hal Lindsey's cartoon books. How about Tim LaHaye's cartoon movies? Tim LaHaye doesn't have a clue about Bible prophecy. And I'm going to undo him before... No, I'm not. He doesn't have a clue about Bible prophecy. All he's done is dramatize what the premillennial school believes. Let's go over that premillennial school just for a moment. Here's what they believe has to happen. The gospel has to be preached in the whole world for a witness and a whole lot of earthquakes have to come and there have to be wars and rumors of wars before Jesus can come back. Where'd they get that from? The first few verses of Matthew 24. When was the first part of Matthew 24 fulfilled? On the generation that rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to come in a secret rapture to resurrect saints away and take them safely to heaven. You know, buses are going to careen off the highways. 747s are going to be in the sky and all of a sudden the pilot's going to be gone. It's going to veer around unless it's on autopilot. And then it's going to run out of fuel and it's going to crash. Because all the wicked are still going to be here, but the believers have been snatched out in what they call the rapture. There's no rapture taught in the Bible. Show me the rapture. Show me the rapture. There is no rapture taught in the Bible. There's one day coming. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Both the wicked and the righteous will be be resurrected the same day. You say, but I thought I read in First Thessalonians chapter 4 that the believers are going to be caught up together to meet the Lord in the clouds and so shall they ever be with the Lord. Of course. But the wicked are resurrected at the very same time to stand before that Lord and to be judged. That's right. we got to get back to, the, to these uh, pre-millennialists and their pre-tribulationary scheme. Now, now, I know what the word pre means. So if I say pre-tribulationary, they mean that Jesus comes before the tribulation and before the millennium. Because, I want to tell you something, they've got a whole Star Wars novel out here in the future. This time that we're living in right now is just boring, wait, 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 for 2,000 years until Jesus is going to do some real exciting things. He's going to come three more times. There's going to be multiple resurrections and multiple judgments. Here we go. They believe there's got to be a whole lot of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes before Jesus can come the second time. When he comes, he's only going to take saints out of this world and buses are going to crash and cars are going to crash. Then there's an Antichrist that's going to immediately appear on the scene. As soon as Jesus is gone, the Antichrist is going to jump out of his closet and he's going to make a covenant with the Jews for three and a half years and he's going to help the Jews build a temple in Jerusalem and they're going to get animal sacrifices rolling again. Then he's going to have a bad day in the middle of that seven years. This is called the seven-year tribulation. He's going to have a bad day, break his covenant with the Jews, and then declare war on them. And for the three and a half years, he's going to fight the Jews. Then Jesus is going to come back. Wait a minute. I thought we already had the second coming. We did. This is their scheme. Jesus is going to come back again. The third coming. Jesus is going to come back. This is what Margaret MacDonald saw in her charismatic trance in 1830 in England. Two comings. Jesus comes back the third time. They have the battle of Armageddon, and Jesus whips up on this so-called Antichrist. You can picture him. He's some deformed-looking man, and he's got a purple 666 that's blinking out of his forehead. You've got him. And if you've got that 666 on your BILO card, then you're in trouble when Jesus comes. Well, you're not even supposed to be here, are you? Because you don't want to be left behind. But while the Antichrist is doing all this for seven years, all of a sudden, 144,000 Jews decide that they ought to get saved. And they become missionaries, and they go throughout the whole world and preach the Gospel to people that had never heard it before so they can have another chance, so they can be ready for Jesus when He comes the third time. This is what everybody believes in our city. 144,000 Jewish missionaries are going to convert many to Christ. I don't know who's going to be in the army of the Antichrist, but he's going to fill the valley of Armageddon when Jesus appears. Jesus comes a third time to destroy Antichrist, and Antichrist is going to have a 200 million horse cavalry from the nation of China. Oh yeah, 200 million. It's in the Bible. 200,000 thousand are going to come across the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And the only place that could mount that kind of a cavalry is China. It's going to be there in the Valley of Armageddon. You bet. Aren't you excited? No. This makes great movies. And Jesus is going to come back and whip up on horses. Just think of our Apache helicopters with their Gatling guns spraying 6,000 rounds a minute, what they would do to a horse cavalry. Oh well, Lord, I'm sorry that it wasn't a more challenging conflict for you. I'm sure you'll be able to handle it. Jesus will then take the throne of David for the first time in His life. In the city of Jerusalem. He'll take the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. Animal sacrifices will be restored. And He's going to rule the earth with a rod of iron. The wicked and the righteous are going to live side by side with each other. And everybody's going to be prosperous and rich. And the lion's going to lie down with the lamb. This is the millennium. They're going to get rid of all the cages at the zoo so that the lion and the lamb can lie down together. This goes on for a thousand years. The Jews finally have their day. They have a carnal Messiah sitting on a carnal throne in a carnal city at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, allowing them to be the master race over this planet again. Um, You shouldn't have to wonder why I call it a Jewish fable. The wicked will submit to Jesus Christ, though they hate Him in their hearts, for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, Satan's going to be released. He's going to get all those people that have been holding it underneath for a thousand years, and they're going to march on Jerusalem. And they're going to get near Jerusalem, and Jesus Christ will annihilate them again by coming, you got it, for the fourth time. He will then defeat them at the end of the millennium. After that, we finally get to the great day of judgment And the books are open and finally we get a new heaven and a new earth where maybe Gentiles and Jews are close to each other in their value before God. These theories that I just told you were unknown before 1830. Since then they have been popularized because everybody likes to follow a crowd. And they've been taught in most churches. We reject all of this premillennial garbage. This is garbage. Let me give you quick ten. Ten quick points that prove that they are so wrong, we don't even have to listen to anything they have to say. Oh, there's a whole lot more. But here's ten. They claim that the millennium is based on unfulfilled promises of land to Abraham. That God had promised a certain amount of land to Abraham, and since God never kept His promise, He's got to keep it at some time in the future, and so that's the basis for the millennium in Israel. Problem. Joshua 11, Joshua 21, Nehemiah chapter 9, and about 20 other places in the Old Testament tell us that God gave all the land that He ever promised to Abraham and Moses. I want to tell you a secret about Abraham. He wasn't looking for any land in this world anyway. He was looking for heaven. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us He didn't care about Canaan or Palestine. He was looking for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker was God. He was looking for the heavenly Jerusalem just like we're sitting in and participating with today. That one point. That is huge. The land issue is huge to them. Right. That is why there is so much money sent from the United States of America to that little Christ-hating nation over there at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea to get their land back. Those people don't deserve that land. That land's been owned by the Arabs for 1500 years. Grow up. Grow up into the New Testament. Hebrew, Daniel chapter 9 that speaks of the 70 weeks of Daniel. They, ha, they stick a 2,000 plus year gap between weeks 69 and 70. Totally making God into a liar who said that 70 weeks are determined upon Israel. That's where they get the seven year tribulation. Since they can't find it in the New Testament, they've got to go to the Old. Since they can't find it in the Old, they take the 70th week of Daniel, rip it away from the 69 weeks, and yet, and jam it out in the future with no predetermined date at all, even though God had said 70 weeks are determined upon the people of Israel. Anybody who does that to a prophecy given that is 70 weeks long and makes it 700 weeks long, doesn't know what they're doing with the Bible. Amen. They are trying to support. See, I'm going to tell you something about what Jews didn't like about Daniel. Daniel described the end of their nation and them as a people. Them as a special, unique people, he described the end of that. And for a Jew who couldn't get over that fact, they have to take the 70th week, rip it out of that book, and throw it out in the future that we are yet to have our greatest day. And along comes a Jew named C.I. Schofield. Yes, he was. Cyrus Ingersoll Schofield. And go read about him if you want to. He comes along and he says, That seven years is going to be yet our greatest day ruling the earth as Jews. It's a Jewish fable. It is just what Paul told Titus not to preach and not to allow to be preached in Titus chapter 1 when he said, shut the mouths of those men that preach Jewish fables. Haggai says that the desire of all nations would come and would make peace in the temple that Zerubbabel built. They say it hasn't happened yet. When they can take such a simple prophecy and jam it out in the future, they do not know how to use the Bible. Paul said that it already happened. Our desire of all nations came and all the nations were looking for him of the, of the believers. That little Jesus was held up by Simeon in the temple that Zerubbabel built and worshipped there. He came in and at the age of 12 he confounded the doctors of the law in that temple. And we've been over all that before. They say that the prophesied Elijah in the last two verses of the Old Testament is going to be a literal return of Elijah when Jesus Christ taught plainly and repeatedly that the prophesied Elijah was John the Baptist. And there is no secondary meaning. Elijah's not coming back for any purpose of any kind whatsoever. He has nothing to offer us. We know more than Elijah ever dreamed of knowing. Elijah is not coming back. Jesus said, if you have ears to hear, this is Elias meaning John the Baptist. If they can't figure out those last two verses, then why would you trust them on anything else that they would ever speculate about? When Jesus said so plainly that Malachi's prophecy was about John the Baptist. They say that a secret rapture is going to occur and they argue about whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. When these people go to Bible college, they sit around with a cup of coffee with their Schofield Bibles. They've never read what their ancestors in the faith have believed for 1,500 years. They don't even know the position. All They're handed a Schofield Bible, and they're told this is a master's degree in theology and eschatology. Read it and enjoy. And they sit around with their cup of coffee and say, well, I'm a pre-trib. I believe Jesus is coming at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. Another person says, well, I'm a mid-trib. I believe he's coming in the middle. And another says, I'm a post-trib. Jesus is coming at the end of the tribulation before the millennium. This doesn't mean anything to any of you, but this is what they sit around and debate and there's whole books written on pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. There isn't a trib. The trib was fulfilled in 70 A.D. When Matthew 24, when the the stones of the temple were torn down by the, the, the Roman soldiers of Titus, they're arguing about something that is already 1,900 years old. Seven years! They take the 70th week of Daniel, tie it to Matthew 24 of a great tribulation, jam it together, even though they're totally unrelated, and that's what they come up with. The seven-year tribulation. Why would you listen to anybody that's arguing about pre, post, or mid of something that was fulfilled 1,900 years ago, and yet they're all worried about it happening in the future? The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are not the same thing. The kingdom of heaven preached in Matthew is what is going to operate and and govern the millennium. That's according to Schofield's notes at Matthew 6.33. That is so easy to prove. You know, I read to you a verse to start this morning that said, The God of heaven shall set up a kingdom. If the God of heaven sets up a kingdom, then that kingdom could be called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven because it was the God of heaven that set up the kingdom. And then when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you find out that he uses them as synonyms. He uses kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God as synonyms. But these premillennialist people say the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are two different things. They maintain that the true Jew is a physical, carnal, fleshly descendant of Abraham. And we understand from Paul making it very plain that the true Jew is a spiritual, regenerate, promised son of Abraham. Not a physical descendant. They say, Jesus tried to set up an earthly kingdom with the Jews, but the Jews refused it. Now hear me out. The cross was an afterthought. Right. <laughs> Jesus came to set up an earthly kingdom, but the Jews refused it. When I read my Bible, I find out something just the opposite. The Jews tried to make Jesus king, and he refused them. That's John chapter 6. Do you know why they tried to make him king? Because he filled their bellies by multiplying the loaves and the fishes. It's in John chapter 6. Jesus didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom doesn't come with observation. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom and it's already within you. They say Jesus Christ has to return the second time and then the Antichrist will show up. But Paul said, be not deceived by any means. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the man of sin has to come first Before Jesus Christ comes! You say, how can some, how can they get so messed up? The Lord has blinded them because they've put their trust in man more than God. They have put their trust in earthly promises instead of spiritual promises in Christ Jesus. They use a wrong Bible method of interpretation. They want the ordinary, normal, literal interpretation of words instead of understanding that we have a spiritual book here describing a spiritual religion, and in many places, it's using words that we're to understand in a secondary sense they are describing something spiritual. And then because it's popular, everybody wants to jump on the bandwagon, and nobody wants to study anymore, and the Lord has turned this nation upside down. Right. They don't want to endure sound doctrine. Do you know what sound doctrine is? that there is glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ is a whole lot better than watching some movie about Jesus Christ fighting with a sword against a 200 million man cavalry from China. Or an antichrist with a blinking 666 in his forehead. They they uh, They do just what Paul told them not to do. They put the Antichrist after the coming of Jesus when Jesus said the Antichrist comes first. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-3 Let no man deceive you by any means, Paul said. For that day, speaking of Christ's coming, shall not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed. They talk of a secret rapture and multiple resurrections, but there's only one resurrection of both the wicked and the righteous at the same time. And all these points can be proved by various verses of Scripture. But there's just ten as a sample of the enormous blunders they have made. And so much of our city, county, and so much of Christian America, and the rest of the world has jumped on this bandwagon. Before 1830, what I just listed to you was unheard of. What does a post-millennialist believe? He believes that if we get involved in government enough... That we can take the world for God. That the world's going to get better and better. Whenever you read some of these Presbyterians, and some of you, I know that you like some of their writings. They're in the homeschool movement. It's called Christian Dominion. It's called the Theonomy. It's called the Christian Reconstructionist Movement. We're going to reconstruct the world into the millennium. We're going to homeschool our children. We're going to teach them all about American politics and mix with it the Bible, and they're going to become lawyers and politicians, and we're going to take over the world for God. Those are post-millennialists. See, we're going to usher in the millennium ourselves, and we're going to have a thousand-year golden age when we're here on earth, and, and righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea by our efforts, then Jesus will come. I don't think we need any help on that one at all. The Bible tells us that evil seducers shall wax worse and worse, and that men will depart from the faith, there will be a falling away from the faith, and that they will turn their ears from sound doctrine and be turned into fables. We will accept the title Amillennialist, but I hope that you will explain it to people, and we are totally out of time and and past out of time this morning. But if someone calls us asks you, what are you on the millennium? You can say, well, we're Amillennialist, but I'd prefer to call it the Gospel Millennium. We believe that Jesus Christ has been sitting on His throne since His first coming, that He and John the Baptist and the Apostles instituted and established the kingdom of God, and our relationship is with Jerusalem and Mount Zion in heaven. And we are reigning in that kingdom with the Lord Jesus Christ at this time, and the next event that's coming is one great day that is going to wrap everything up. It will include the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, us being taken into heaven and a new heavens and a new earth established, wherein dwelleth righteousness, and we will dwell in that forever and ever. May the Lord Jesus Christ bless His Word, and may we love Him as the King of our kingdom and the Savior of our church forever and ever.